0: Amen. At this point in our service, we take our Bibles, and I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we uh, welcome you to take one from our resource table in the back, and I hope that will be encouraging to you. (coughs) And uh, today we're in chapter 4 of Luke, the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And we've been working our way through these uh, sections of, of the Gospel of Luke over the last several months, and look forward to all that God has for us in this book. In the passage before us today, we have a summary of Jesus' early ministry, and uh, particularly of his preaching ministry, of what he was saying to, uh, to the people he would preach to and teach uh, in various environments. Today's passage is in a synagogue, but certainly uh, he was preaching these types of messages in a variety of other places as well. But I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. We're going to study this passage together uh, this morning and great rejoicing for God's words. Let me read aloud Luke 4 as you follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Recently, the Atlantic Magazine, in recognition of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, published an article called What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind, Grief conspiracy theories, and one family's search for meaning in the two decades since 9-11. I didn't read the entire article, but what I did gather from it uh, last month or so when I read that was that this man named Bobby McIlvain was well-respected and well-liked and well-appreciated, and he was killed in the attacks on the um, World Trade Center in New York City, and his family has obviously deeply suffered from his loss. He was dating a young lady when he was killed. He uh, had a good relationship with his family members, particularly with his parents. And this uh, grief continues to have tremendous ripple effects in their lives and great uh, sorrow in their hearts. <clears throat> the way that Bobby McIlvain's father has dealt with the grief of 9-11, though, is by believing conspiracy theories about what happened in the World Trade Center that day. And he's certainly not alone in believing that the World Trade Center uh, attacks and the other attacks that fateful day were an inside job. At a coffee shop I went to in Knoxville, Tennessee about five years or so ago, I uh, walked in and a man was sitting there with a laptop, that had a bumper sticker on, on the laptop that said, 9-11 was an inside job, ask me about it. And he was wearing a t-shirt that had the exact same message on it, like he'd created all this merchandise himself to be able to sit in coffee shops, I suppose, and try and preach his gospel, in his mind, of the inside work of 9-11. And so he had a stack of flyers there, inviting people to take them, so that you could read this heartwarming, encouraging material while you drink your coffee and eat your muffin or whatever else you buy at a coffee shop. And uh, he uh, clearly was trying to get people to be convinced, like he was convinced, that 9-11 was an inside job. We would call that man a conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy theorists talk about all kinds of issues in our day, whether they be school shootings or people walking on the moon or certainly 9/11 or a number of other issues. But a conspiracy theorist is someone who disbelieves what the modern or what the major media is going to tell you. He's someone, he or she is someone who's going to believe that, you know, that we who listen to the media perhaps at least to some extent, hopefully not Entirely undiscerningly, but that we listen to the major networks and what they tell us actually happened, well, you obviously are just sheeple. You You don't even think for yourselves. You just follow the crowd and, and have no idea what you're doing. But as I saw what this man, a conspiracy theorist, was thinking and propagating that day in that coffee shop in Knoxville, I had several thoughts as I ordered my coffee. One was, how did he come to this conclusion? Like, did he you know was he taught this by his parents or some close friend? maybe he he read an article? Maybe he uh, just did a whole lot of googling about nine eleven and just came to this conclusion independently. But secondly, if he 's convinced of that to the point that he 's this bold in proclaiming his message and trying to get others to believe it with him, I guess the next question I had was, what else would he be willing to believe like is that where is he going to stop in what he is willing to believe and, and make his own and the third question that I think was. Certainly the most important question that could cross our minds in a situation like that is, is the gospel also a false reality in his mind? Would he look at the gospel as being just alternative facts? Or would he actually be willing to listen to it? And that's certainly the most important question because we hear so many competing messages in our day. We regularly hear competing messages about what is true in life. And perhaps you hear these alternative claims about what is true through the the talk radio you listen to, or the podcast you listen to, or even the magazines you read, or the blog posts you read, the books you read, the conversations you have at a restaurant. Maybe even just by the way you think to yourself. You know, when you think to yourself, essentially you're listening to yourself. And so then you are hearing... Claims about what is true. Maybe you have friends or or you read bumper stickers and billboards and all of these are shouting at you to believe a certain kind of message, believe a certain way about life. And none of these influences, including our own hearts, are always accurate. None of them are always right. And so what this means, if we have this many claims swirling around our heads and working their way into our hearts and into our minds through our ears and our eyes, is that we need someone who actually tells us the truth. And the Bible would call that kind of a person a prophet. A prophet is someone who who preaches God's word, who proclaims God's word, and frankly even was God's word to God's people. Because many of God's people didn't have their own copy of God's word. They would go to the synagogue to hear God's word read aloud in the Old Testament. They would go to churches in the New Testament to hear God's word read aloud because they didn't have their own copy of the word of God. And so a prophet in that way is the word of God, the voice of God to God's people in Scripture. And we need a prophet who tells us the truth on behalf of God and about God's plan and about God's kingdom and God's work. And what we see in this passage today is that the prophet we need, the one who cuts through the fog that we live in by hearing all these competing truth claims, the prophet we need is Jesus himself. He is the true prophet. And we remember in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses uh, told us that God would send a, a prophet like me, Moses was saying, God would raise up a prophet like me who will proclaim the truth. And when you come to the end of the Old Testament, You still don't have a person like that. There's still anticipation for this true prophet of God's word. And in this passage in particular before us today, we see that Jesus is the true prophet who proclaims and fulfills God's saving plan. He's the true prophet who proclaims and fulfills God's saving plan. So what should you do in response to hearing the truth from this prophet? You should submit to him. You should believe everything he says, and you should do everything he calls you to do. Luke shows us in this passage three ways in which Jesus is the true prophet. So in verses 16 through 22, we see that Jesus is the true prophet in the message he preaches. He's the true prophet in the message he preaches. Verses 14 through 15 are essentially a summary of Jesus' early ministry in Galilee, which is the region to the north of Jerusalem. Uh, before he headed into Jerusalem itself in Luke 9, which is a major hinge point in the, in the book of Luke. So Galilee, if you want to think of it this way, so uh, we could say Galilee is like living in Chicagoland. So someone can live in Dyer, Indiana, or in St. Charles, or in Winnetka, and all of them say they live in Chicagoland, but those are three very different parts of Chicagoland. Like those are very uh, distinct places, Winnetka and Evanston in that area is what an hour and a half from Dyer, Indiana, which is itself its own unique destination. <laughs> um, but they all have claim to it being Chicagoland. So in a, same, in a similar way, Galilee is this very large region, comparatively speaking, and Nazareth, this place where Jesus says he's from, the Scripture tells us Jesus is from, is is a small town in that region, okay? So, you know, we are in countryside, a small town uh, in the region of Chicagoland, we could say. The region here is Galilee. The town is Nazareth where this is happening. But verse 14 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Where is he returning from? Well, very likely, it's just referring to the fact that he's been ministering elsewhere, in other parts of the land, and as he comes back, or it says he's in the in the power of the Spirit, which takes us back to his baptism in verse twenty two, Luke three twenty two, that where God's Spirit descends on him like a dove in bodily form, and and so here that he's he went into the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and resisted temptation in the power of the Spirit, and now he's ministering the gospel, he's preaching the truth in the power of the Spirit as well. But as he's going around to all these different areas in, in this region of Galilee. People are talking about him. They're saying, man, when he talks, it's different than when those other guys talk. And they're hearing what, what the passage later on will call gracious words, words that reflect God's grace is likely what that means. But he's going around all these places in the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And that word glorified, it's not like we are designed to glorify God, we are created to glorify God, it's the idea that we're just praising him. The way we praise athletes or popular politicians or uh, popular media types, they were were recognizing this guy is something special. We like it when he speaks. He was being well-received. He was being praised wherever he went. But then verses 16 through 22 reveals what his teaching was like in all these synagogues. What was he saying when he went to these synagogues? And this passage is an example of an early sermon in Jesus' ministry an early summary of what he was saying and what he was doing when he would go and preach in these places so a synagogue uh, is where people would go particularly on the sabbath day to worship god and we don't have a ton of information of what happened in these synagogues in this era you can go to a synagogue today and you know listen in on on their uh, sabbath services on a friday evening Uh, very interesting to do that but in, in that day, we don't have a ton of information. They probably sang some psalms together, perhaps in some kind of a chant or a tune that was familiar to them. And they likely read from a wide variety of the Old Testament, probably from the law and from the prophets, and from the writings, such as the psalms. And so here he is in a synagogue, and what we see is uh, that in verse uh, seventeen, uh, verse 16, as was his custom, so he did this regularly. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, where he was brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So perhaps the attendant, who is referred to here, the person responsible for that Sabbath in particular, or for that, yeah, that Sabbath service in that particular synagogue, would say, "Okay, Jesus, why don't you get up and read for us? We've enjoyed everything you said before. Just get up and read this passage." And so he handed him a particular scroll, and he asked Jesus to read the part of the Old Testament that we know as the Prophets. And the prophet that he was supposed to read on that particular day, maybe on the schedule, was from the prophet Isaiah. But what it sounds like when you read verse 17 is that Jesus, while given a particular scroll from Isaiah, he probably hand-selected which passage he read. So he could have read Isaiah 53. He could have read Isaiah 55 about God's word not returning void. He could have read Isaiah 40 about comfort, comfort my people. There were a variety of passages he could have gone to. He goes to Isaiah 61. He unrolled the scroll in verse 17 and found the place where it was written. And I'm going to get into verses 18 and 19 in depth in a moment. But then after he reads it, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And so basically you have this, this, uh, the way that this passage is structured. Let's put it this way. Luke draws all the attention to the passage that he reads aloud. He says he stood up, took the scroll, opened it. Handed the scroll, rolled the scroll up, handed it back, sat back down. And so now everyone is ready to listen to him. But why why was what he was saying so important? It's because of what he read, the passage that he read, and what he said about that passage then. And so what we see is that uh, in verse uh, 21, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They wanted to hear what he said about this passage, which again we'll, we'll go into in just a moment. This is kind of like when the bride is walking down the aisle at a wedding. Everyone's eyes go there. You're not looking out the window to watch what the weather's doing. You're not you know, checking your phone ideally while the bride is walking down the aisle. Your eyes are fixed on that person. This is the most important part of the day. And this is what people were doing in this context as well. They're fixing their eyes on Jesus. And then they hear what he says about it and they start to murmur. Why are they murmuring? Why are they kind of just surprised, at the very least, by what he says? Well, it's because of what this passage that he read in Isaiah 61 actually says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, going back to his baptism that had happened. The Spirit had descended on him. He's ministry, his entire ministry is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What Jesus is saying in reading this passage and then in saying in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, what he's saying is, I am the Messiah. Everyone knew Isaiah 61 was talking about the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years to come and rescue God's people. And here Jesus says, by you hearing me read this passage, this passage has now been fulfilled. There is a person who is bearing the Holy Spirit and who is preaching good news. And so he's saying, I am the one who is the Messiah. I am the one who fulfills this passage. It says that they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. They're saying, wow, that sounds really good. He's a really good preacher. We enjoy this guy. We really like what he's saying, but... Don't get me wrong. Isn't that Joseph's son? You know, in our context, we might say, didn't I rock him to sleep in the nursery? Isn't that who that is? We gave him rides in the van to soccer practice. He's just an average kid. How can he be saying what that passage says? So with that in mind, let's see what that passage says. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? And what we have here in this passage is four infinitives. And now I see all your eyes roll into the back of your heads. An infinitive is just the word to and then another word. Okay, so you see there in, at the end of verse, or middle of verse 18, to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what he came to do. That's an infinitive, is to proclaim. And I believe that the rest of this passage he's reading is underneath that good news. It's a description of what the good news is, in other words. So the good news, proclaiming good news is the umbrella term of what Jesus is doing, but he's proclaiming good news to the poor. Secondly, he's been sent by the Holy Spirit to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set people who are captive free, which again, in a time of exile, that sounds great. Free the, the, the exiles, free the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. Well, we have... Stories of Jesus giving sight to the blind and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, of the Lord's salvation for his people. So these four infinitives, to proclaim, next to proclaim, next to set at liberty, and next to proclaim. So three of these are about preaching, are about proclaiming, are about being a prophet. That's why we're saying Jesus is the true prophet in this passage. So all of these infinitives describe Jesus' ministry in summary form. And all of them come from Isaiah 61, except for the one about uh, the uh, setting at liberty of those who are oppressed. That comes from Isaiah 58, which makes us think that perhaps Luke is summarizing some of what Jesus is reading here. But these are very similar terms, primarily about what Jesus preaches as a prophet, as the true prophet. And what I would say is that this, this message, he's proclaiming good news to the poor, is a summary of everything Jesus preaches here in Nazareth, but everywhere else he was going as well. He's bringing the gospel to the poor. And so then we have to ask, well, who are the poor? And obviously they're people who are, who are limited in money or in resources, but I think more specifically, these are people who are spiritually poor. These are people who may not even realize that they're poor because they are wealthy in other ways. Maybe they own a large tract of land that they've inherited from their family. Well, I'm not poor. I don't need this good news. I'm not poor. No, you are poor, spiritually poor. Spiritually speaking. These are also people who are spiritual captives and they're spiritually oppressed people and spiritually blind people. And Jesus is saying that the remedy for those problems is outside of you. You can't save yourself. You can't hear good news from your own heart, from the messages you are churning out of your own mind. You need an outside message, an outside messenger, an outside prophet to tell you the good news and to give you sight and to give you freedom. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So who are the poor people? We are the poor people. We are spiritually destitute apart from Christ. But the reality is we don't see ourselves that way. We tend to see ourselves as being spiritually rich, as having what we need, as being able to solve our spiritual problems on our own. Similarly, we don't see ourselves as spiritual captives, as people who have handcuffs on us so that we cannot save ourselves. But in reality, that is exactly how we are apart from Christ. A few years ago, someone sent me a link to a news article from another city, and the reason they sent me this particular article is because it was about a, a uh, particular kind of sting operation and uh, the police had gone to this espe- particular kind of establishment one day and arrested something like 26 men on their lunch break and I knew two of those men. And that's why this person sent me the link to the article saying you might want to be aware of these two guys getting arrested. One of those guys I knew very well because I had sat next to him in something like a dozen classes, because our last names were similar to each other, throughout college. And here he is getting arrested for a particular kind of sin. And what I would say is, he didn't become a spiritual captive when he walked into that establishment and had his hand slapped on his, his handcuffs slapped on his hands. He was a spiritual captive long before that. And it's possible that we have spiritual captives here today as well. And maybe you didn't come in here thinking of yourself that way. Maybe you came in thinking yourself, thinking to yourself that you are fine with God. But we all start our lives as spiritual captives. And we remain that way until the Lord is the one who frees us, who sets us at liberty. And so if you're here today and you are beginning to recognize as I preach this passage to you, I am spiritually poor. I am a spiritual captive. I urge you not to leave with an unsettled feeling about that today and doing nothing else about it. Please talk to us after the service and let us show you how the Lord can give you this kind of freedom through the gospel. So he proclaims good news to the poor. He proclaims liberty to those who are captives, spiritual captives. He gives sight to the blind, again, spiritually blind. And this is the reality that all of us are born into is spiritual blindness. And then he also Sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Again, spiritually oppressed people. And so we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church urge you, if you walked in here today and you are spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, spiritually in bondage, to find freedom, to find riches in Christ. And you do that by repenting and by believing the gospel, the hope that Jesus is the one who, as Charles Wesley wrote some 300 years ago, Jesus came to break the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. What Charles Wesley's saying there is, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you too, because I know how spiritually destitute I am. I hope you know how spiritually destitute you are. Look carefully at your heart and see, no, I'm not a good person. I'm not fundamentally good. I am fundamentally broken and immoral, not fundamentally moral. But even us as Christians uh, also have spiritual parts of our lives, parts of our spiritual lives, I should say, that also reflect that we are still in poverty and we still need the grace of the Lord to help us walk in obedience and walk in, in repentance every day. The next part of the message here in verse 19 is that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the season or the time period of the Lord's favor. This is a way of saying Again, from Isaiah 61, that salvation is open to all. That this is the season in which you can come and you can be, uh, become a child of God. And what we see when you go to Isaiah 61 is that the next line is about judgment. And people who say, oh, the Messiah is coming, that means he's going to judge our enemies. Well, Jesus stopped there. The time for judgment is later. At the second coming of the Lord. This is the time for salvation. This is the time for repenting and believing. This is the time to get right with God. And so he stopped mid-sentence here. Paul picks up on this language in 2 Corinthians 6 and says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. That means today is the day to repent. We don't know when the Lord is going to return. So repent now while you have the opportunity, while you yet can be saved from your sin. Jesus is the true prophet in the message he preaches. He's the one preaching the true story of the world, the story that we all have to believe, the story that we are spiritually needy, and that he is the one who meets our needs. He is the remedy. The true prophet in the message he preaches. Secondly, he's the true prophet in the comparison he draws. In verses 23 through 27, he's anticipating the minds and the questions of the people there that day. Well, if you're a prophet like you're saying you are, you're here to proclaim this truth, That means you're like other prophets. And one way we can tell if you're a prophet is by giving us the proof. The proof's in the pudding, they say. And so, a proverb in this day was, if you're a doctor, you show us that you're good at medicine by healing yourself, right? You say that medicine makes your hair grow back. Show us what your scalp looks like now after you started giving yourself that medicine. We want to see the proof that you can actually do what you say. So, physician, heal yourself, is what he anticipates they're going to say. He also anticipates they're going to say, Hey, we've heard what you did in Capernaum. We've heard what you've done in other regions. Tell us, let us see what you've done there in our midst. We want it all to happen here. Then we'll believe that you're the true prophet. And Jesus turns that on their heads. He says, Yeah, these these objections aren't going to hold up. Because, listen, there were other opportunities for people to believe that prophets were true And they rejected them. And let me give you two examples, Jesus says. You, as the people of Israel, rejected Elijah. And you, as the people of Israel, rejected Elisha. When Elijah went to go receive help from a widow, he had to go to a Gentile woman, someone who was outside the family of God. And when Elisha went to heal a leper, he had to go to a Gentile as well. He had to heal Naaman. Not, not another Israelite. Someone from outside of our family tree. And let me say that did not go over well when Jesus said that. These people are hearing that they are just as needy as a starving Gentile woman. They're just as needy as a leprous Gentile man. And that does not sit well with our hearts. What they're saying was that judgment was going to come on israel for their unbelief just as it had back then it's going to do it again now and so perhaps you're hearing this concept of judgment and it doesn't sit well with you that judgment comes on those who reject god and god's saving message but what this passage is doing is holding out hope to you it's yes there's an implicit warning of judgment But there's also an explicit invitation to come and receive life and liberty and sight and riches. So this day of judgment, this day of accountability, yes, it's sobering. Yes, it's coming. But the Bible has given you fair warning about that. And this passage that says that the Lord has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor says, This is the day of salvation. Come and receive life now by putting your hope in Christ alone. So Jesus is the true prophet in the message he preaches, in the comparison he draws, and third, in verses 28 through 30, he's the true prophet in the rejection he receives. How did these people respond to this message and to this comparison? Not well, is the short answer. Prophets were by and large rejected by God's people throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. People like John the Baptist who had his head cut off For what he said to Herod, we read back in chapter 3. At least we read of his arrest back in chapter 3. Certainly Jesus. Certainly others throughout scripture. To the point that when Jesus says, uh, when he describes Jerusalem in Luke 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's the reputation of the city of Jerusalem. You kill prophets. You stone those who God has sent to preach good news to you. And so the people, when they heard Jesus draw this comparison and say he's like Elijah and Elisha and say that he's the fulfillment of this passage. In other words, he's the Messiah. When they hear him say that, they have had enough. All right, Jesus, we liked you when you were little and all, but you have crossed the line, is essentially what they say. And so they drive him out of the synagogue. They drag him out To kill him is essentially what we read in verse 29. They rose up. They're filled with wrath. They drove him out of the town. They take him to a high point so they can throw him down the cliff. What are they going to do once they throw him down? They're probably going to stone him like they stone Stephen in Acts chapter 7. They are not happy. They're an angry mob here. And all we can say about verse 30, which sounds like he is on the brink of death here, But passing through their midst, he went away. As it sounds like the Holy Spirit intervened in such a way that perhaps there was a blinding light. I'm just throwing out ideas of what could have happened here. For some reason, they had him by, you know, by his clothing, perhaps. And they take him to the edge of the cliff. And he just slips away. And they're left grasping. What happened? Where did he go? And what happened, we read about in John 10.18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In John's language, the Gospel of John, uh, I just totally lost my place in my thoughts. So never mind that part. Delete the last 10 seconds. But what we need to recognize, I was going to quote another passage, and and it eluded me, I think, is the word I'm looking for there. It was elusive. Uh, What we need to recognize is that people are prone to reject the truth. I'm prone to reject the truth. You're prone to reject the truth. This is why people look for conspiracy theories, because the truth doesn't sit well with them. Spiritual truth doesn't sit well with us either. Uh, I have an acquaintance who's a pastor named Andy Davis, Lord willing, he'll be preaching here next year for our pastor's conference. But he went into a church in North Carolina where he faced extreme animosity for his faithfulness to the word of God to the point that he was getting death threats. One lady walked up to him one Sunday and said, I am praying that God kills you. And it was because of some way in which he was trying to show faithfulness to the word of God. That's the environment he walked into. When Al Muller became the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, they had to put bulletproof glass in his house and in his car because of the environment he walked into in in a liberal seminary at that time. And so when we hear about people Being hated because of the message that they preach. What we recognize is it's all going back to the way that Jesus himself was treated. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. and They don't want to hear what other people have to say when they are faithful to the word of God. But we as Christians have no choice. We uphold the message of Christ. We preach what Christ himself has said. That he is the one who preaches good news. Who brings good news. And so we as God's people believe his evaluation of our need. We listen, we agree with God, we admit uh, our need that that his word is true, not our own hearts. We listen to his word privately and corporately. We brace for rejection when we are sharing the truth and when we're confronting unbelievers with their needs or even confronting sinful believers with their needs. Sinful believers, uh, putting emphasis on believers there. Whether you're talking to someone who claims to love God or not, we, we recognize that it doesn't sit well when people are confronted with their sin. We live like people who know our need. If you really know you're a needy person, you go and do something about it. You go and you get help for your need. And we remember that now is the time to repent. That today is the day of salvation. That this is the year of the Lord's favor. Your window of Opportunity to repent and believe the gospel is still open to you. And so rejoice in that and turn to Christ. Because people all around us are claiming to have the truth. But Jesus himself is the one who preaches the truth. He is the truth, John 14 says. And so we, as the people who love this Jesus, tell people, point people back to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we give glory to you for this passage and for the way it reveals our own tendency to reject truth, to not want to acknowledge our neediness. But we thank you that Christ is the remedy. And so we pray that you would continue to do a great work in our hearts, even long after we leave here today, helping us to grapple with the fact that Jesus is the only one we can turn to for spiritual life and spiritual freedom. praise you that he is this and so much more for us. In his name we pray. Amen.